Welcome back to Between Two White Coats, a podcast designed to help you be the healthiest version of yourself. I'm Dr. Michelle Plaster, a family medicine doctor. And I'm her co-host, Amber Foster, a family nurse practitioner. In our combined 30 years in medicine, we've seen a lot. We're discussing key issues surrounding health and wellness, answering some of our biggest questions, overcoming health obstacles, and giving patient-centered advice in hopes of educating you and providing the tools you need to live a healthy life. If you find our podcast helpful, please consider subscribing so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to leave us a five-star rating and review. This will help other people find our podcast. Thanks for joining us. We look forward to serving you. Thank you for joining us today. Today we are digging into a really heavy topic. This is not a feel-good episode, but it is maybe one of our more important episodes. We're going to be talking about end-of-life issues and things that you really need to be aware of because when bad things happen is not the time to learn about what you needed to already know or to be able to kind of flounder through what to do when someone learns that they have a difficult diagnosis or is getting really sick or is dying. So today we want to take you through what kind of paperwork, what kind of discussions, and what kind of knowledge you should have because as much as our job in healthcare is to help save lives and prevent and treat illness, the one thing that we know more than anyone is we all end up in the same place. We all die. We all lose loved ones and we all have really difficult times with difficult decisions. And so one of the things that we feel responsible for as your healthcare providers is to help make those really hard times slightly less difficult. Having some of this information as you stumble through those difficult times is going to help you a lot. And if you are prepared in advance, you will be forever grateful because when you are in the throes of things, it's not the easiest time to make these decisions. End of life care is... um my nursing background is oncology. And so, um, sometimes, you know, you, you have some time to prepare with cancer, not always, but, um, I saw this play out a lot. Um, when I worked in a hospital setting, um, having to make a difficult call for some families was awful. It was so heart wrenching because they hadn't discussed it or they didn't have clarity. And so you have family that one family member wants to do one thing and another family member wants to do another. And so it becomes this like, almost fight. And it's very hard. There is no question that when people find out that someone that they love dearly is dying, that they are not their best self. Mm -hmm. They are not in their clearest peace of mind and they're not able to really make good decisions. And we've seen families fall apart. We've seen families get into huge arguments. Um, and truly the, the answer is very clear in these very unclear times What does the person who's dying want? But it's not normally like, you know, the Thanksgiving table topic of conversation. No one wants to have it. Who wants to say that? So, hey, mom, we haven't talked about what's going to happen when you're dying. (laughs) So let's talk about that at the holidays. You know, these are really hard things to talk about. And we're always encouraging our patients. You know, when we do Medicare wellness visits for our over 65 patients, we're always asking them, have you had these conversations? Because you know when is a much easier time to have it before you have the diagnosis and before you're really talking about having to implement these decisions. And many times 
there isn't the gradual decline where you have the opportunity to have the discussion after the diagnosis. Um, there are there are traumatic brain injuries where someone yeah. is good until they're not, yeah. and at that point you can't have the discussion. Yeah. So we we really encourage you to have these discussions and say we're healthy, we're doing fine, but there's a day that all of us come to where we're not going to be healthy and doing fine. So what are your desires? You know, it's funny, I think at age 30, I had this conversation with my family because when you do this for a living, it's very real to you and you see other people go through it and you don't want to burden your family with not knowing what your desires are. Um, I've been in, in these scenarios as a family member and the thing that gave me more comfort than anything is knowing that I was pursuing the wishes of my loved one. And so you have to know what those people's wishes are. Um, There's a lot of different forms and paperwork and legal ways to do this. We definitely encourage you to complete the forms and paperwork. Whether you choose to do that through an attorney or whether you choose to do that on your own, you know, if you feel what I typically will tell patients is you don't have to spend a lot of time and money going to an attorney to do yeah. these things. If you're struggling to navigate it, an attorney certainly can help you navigate it well. Or if you know that you have a family, that this may become a legal situation. If you know that you have two children and they stand on opposite sides in a belief uh, or that you have a child that may show up and really want to argue whatever your wishes are, then you may want to make sure that this is notarized and that an attorney helped to make sure it was drawn up to where it's really um, able to withstand any kind of, of court hearings that it may have to go through. But if you don't feel like that's the scenario, then you can access these forms online, complete them, let your family know these are our wishes, this is what we've talked about. Um, What are some of the different forms that exist out there that people are going to want to make sure that they have done? So the ones that we talk about, like you mentioned, our Medicare wellness visits, um, are something called a living will and a medical power of attorney. So the differences between the two is a medical power of attorney is someone that you designate to make the decision if you cannot. Um, If you have a living will in place, yes, you probably do need a medical power of attorney, but if your living will states exactly what you want or what you do not want, then essentially that kind of supersedes a medical power of attorney. And a medical power of attorney can be different than a financial power of attorney. You know, in my family, I'm a medical person. Um, My sister is much better at financial stuff. And so uh, our parents can decide, well... We want Shelly to make decisions with medical stuff. We want Rhonda to make decisions with financial stuff. It doesn't have to be the same person. Yeah. So one person, if you could not handle your own finances um, for whatever reason, then I, this doesn't mean that the person can come in and then take all your money. Yeah. You have to be deemed incompetent medically to be able to handle your finances. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we do in our jobs on a regular basis, unfortunately, is um, help decide whether people medically are able to handle their finances anymore. This isn't like a quick, hey, you bounced a check. We're yeah. going to now have someone take over all of your money. You know, this is for people who have progressive dementia. And, you know, one a scenario I can think of is a patient who came in um, with her family and uh, she had gone into the bank and the bank actually called the out-of-town children to let them know that she was at the bank. She was very confused. She um, was trying to access accounts that she didn't have. The bank was very worried about what was happening. And the children then said, yeah, we know that that's where mom is. It's been a difficult thing for us to admit, 
but imagine what could have happened. Yeah. Um, and and so in in different scenarios where we say no, there's there's just no way that this person is able to make any kind of decisions. They're not going to be able to handle their finance finances. There's a good chance that someone may take advantage of them. Um, and so a trusted loved one needs to take over and help oversee their finances. Um, and same with medical decision making. No mm-hmm. one can come in and make your medical decisions for you just because yeah. you put their name on uh, the line. This is if something happens to where you're in a coma, you're unconscious, you're on a ventilator, and no one can ask you, or you have such progressive dementia that you don't have any decision making capacity then you've already said, this is who I want to make decisions for me. If you haven't done that, different states have different orders of which they just select. So it typically will default to your spouse. Well, maybe your spouse is all has dementia. Maybe your spouse has great anxiety and isn't going to be able to say what's in your best um, behalf. Um, Or you don't feel like that's a person that you can have this conversation with, but you have a child who's very strong and will be able to shoulder all of this. Well, then you wouldn't want the state to just choose the spouse. You would want them to choose your child. Well, you're going to have to put that in writing somewhere so that people know who to reference and who's going to be able to do this on your behalf um, in the best way possible. If you are a medical power of attorney, some of the things that we would suggest, like let's say you're the spouse or the child, um, is to have things like um, get a medication list. You know, get a list of surgeries or past medical history so that if something were to happen, then you had access to things like who's their primary care doctor? Can we uh, contact them? You know, the things that we kind of take for granted, like we know mom's on some sort of blood pressure medicine, but we don't really remember what it is. And we don't really remember the pharmacy because when you get in those high stress environments like a hospital stay, like you're not thinking clearly. So just having all that written down in a place that is easy to access, the phone number of of your mom's doctor doctor, um, all of those things yeah. would make it so much easier for you. You've already yes. got it right there. Yeah. And then keeping that updated because yes. you're going to hear this podcast and you're going to be moved to do a yes. lot of amazing things. <laughs> yes. And then in five years, her med list has changed. Mm-hmm. Her diagnoses have changed. And so you want to make sure that you have that kind of communication to where you're keeping things updated. You at least once a year sit and make sure that everything is still the same. Um, And you got to have the difficult conversations. And again, I say have the difficult conversations when they're slightly less difficult, when people are are still healthy and doing well. But you've got to be able to know if you're going to be involved in helping in someone else's decisions, um, you've got to be able to know what they would want. So here's the kind of questions that you ask that we medical people can kind of fish through easier It is not a yes or no answer, do you want CPR? It is not a yes or no answer, do you want to be put on a vent? Um, I think that COVID was something that really opened our eyes to the difference of being put on a vent. A lot of people got ventilated who were sick with COVID, and, and some people, they were very healthy before they got COVID and then they got put on a vent. And if you ask that person, well, would you want to be on a vent? They kind of picture this. Do I want to live for five years on a ventilator, uh, unconscious in a coma? No, of course not. But would you want to be put on a vent for a short period of time if there was a, if there was a reasonable medical belief that you would get better and come off of the vent? And then if we were counseled that you would not likely get better to be able to live a 
life that has quality for you off of the vent than would you like to be removed from the vent? A lot of times people get put on a ventilator and then the choice is to remove them from the ventilator. So you have to be able to have some really honest conversations with the medical team to know, well, what's the outcome going to look like and what's their life going to look like if they're removed from the ventilator? Same with CPR. If, if someone has a heart attack and you initiate CPR and attempt to save their life, but then if they're in the hospital and they're doing very poorly and we don't expect that they'll ever have quality of life, then that's the time where you may change your mind and say no more CPR. We, we don't think that there's going to be anything good come from this and it's going to put our loved one through unnecessary medical treatments. Um, feeding tubes are another conversation to have. Uh, if there is a short-term situation where you can't swallow and it's going to be able to be fixed, then maybe you do a short-term feeding tube. Um, but then you want to talk about, well, if I'm never going to be able to feed myself or um, handle um, oral hydration and nutrition, would I want to sustain life with a feeding tube for a long time? And there are no right answers to any of these questions. It's really whatever is most comfortable for the person who you're having the discussion with and then making sure that you're clear so that you can abide by their wishes. Yeah. And that, those are things that are involved in a living will, not a medical power of attorney. But, um, so that's kind of the difference. There's a very simple form that you may want to make sure you have completed with your doctor. And this is typical things that primary care doctors will have on file. Um, a POLST form, and POLST is P-O-L-S-T, and it stands for Physician Order of Life Sustaining Treatment. And so this allows your physician to know what your desires would be regarding CPR and ventilators and feeding tubes and um, what kind of treatment you would want under what kind of scenarios so that when your physician was helping to direct the medical care, they would know what your desires were and those types of things too. Um, in hospital settings, and even here, we'll ask patients like to bring us a copy of that. So it's important to also have a copy of those things. Um, when I used to work in the hospital setting, we would ask people, do you have a copy of it? Can you bring it to the hospital? Just so that they have it on file as well. So um, a good place to have that would be um, just easily accessible and then the primary care office as well. And if you have a loved one who lives in a facility like a nursing home or an assisted living, you would want to make sure that the facility has that in their files there because if they got picked up by the ambulance or something at the facility, the facility will make sure that that form goes with them to the hospital, hospital yeah. so the hospital has it right away. Yes. Um, one of the things that, we, that you mentioned on the living will um, – was or didn't mention was a DNR status. So that means do not resuscitate. Um, so those are things like not doing CPR, not placing on a vent, not placing a feeding tube. Um, and sometimes those are hard discussions to have as a medical provider to someone um, being in that situation in the past to, to say, hey, we've done all that we can do. Like there's nothing else, the quality of life, like you mentioned, um, there will be no quality of life. Um, and then to, to remove those um, uh, those life-sustaining, potential life-sustaining um, devices like vents and feeding tubes. Um, so that is also something that you can put in your living will is if you wanted anything or nothing. Yeah, and that makes me think, as you're saying that, that these are living and changing documents. Yes. That you can have something and then, and then status changes happen and medical teams come to you and say, this has happened, this has happened, it's really not good. And so at this point, would you want to put in a DNR order? Yeah. You know, you may, 
You may start a process saying do everything and then as you go through that process, a time comes where you realize we've done everything, we've done a lot, it's not getting us to a place of better and so I'm I'm feeling like the time has come to stop doing everything. Yeah. Um, I think in our experience, I having an open and supportive conversation with people so that people also know that whatever decision they're making in their own medical uh, arena is okay. Because we often see the person who is sick making a decision to benefit the rest of the room. Um, You want to make sure that you are being supportive of your loved one because they have to be able to say, I'm tired, I'm done, I can't do this anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. Yeah. I'm okay with moving on. Yeah. Um, and and you giving them permission to be okay with moving and on. And sometimes that's really hard. It's so hard. It's so hard. And and people don't want to be able to, they, they don't want to say that because they don't want to leave you. And these yeah. are difficult times for everyone. But being able to have these conversations early kind of creates that openness that, you know, mom, what we would want is to just always do what you want. So yeah. know that and be honest with us. We're here to support you. And when you can have those conversations before things happen, then it really makes it easier to continue the conversation when things are changing. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of really good resources. You know, we're just planting the seed for you to know that this is something that you should do um, and that although it is difficult, it is necessary. Um, But there are a couple of really good resources. One is the National Institute of Health. And if you go into your search engine and look at National Institute of Health Advanced Care Planning, the phrase that you're typically searching is advanced care planning for all of these Mm -hmm. different documents. Um, The National Institute of Health steps you through all of it, and you can click in different areas to get to these different forms. And it tells you the, the way that you can start these conversations. It gives you some guidance. Um, So that if this is something that you go, I just don't even know where to start, um, that is a really good resource. Uh, The AARP also has it done by state. So different states require different things. um, And so that's helpful as well. Yeah. And as I say, you know, you might not need a lawyer. You might need a lawyer. Yeah. All of that is really state dependent. And so you want to be specific to where you live, to where the person lives that would this decision would be on their behalf. Yeah. Okay. So we've... Uh, let's say we've made a decision for end-of-life care and we choose hospice. Um, Such an important thing to talk about because I feel that there is more misinformation about hospice than there is true and accurate information. First of all, we all know to cringe when we hear hospice because hospice means that someone is dying. Um, And and that's a really difficult conversation to have and a really difficult um, thing to accept. What I would encourage everyone to do when you cringe when um, a medical team speaks hospice to you is to know that you're cringing because of the fact that someone that you love is dying, but to not cringe because you think hospice is a terrible thing. Hospice is an incredible thing that we feel so strongly about and and feel um, that the work that they do is so valuable. So I want, I want to encourage everyone to be open to learning about what hospice truly is. Yeah. Um, you will hear people say, I, I hate to even say this, you will hear people <laughs> say, we've heard it, hospice killed my mother, hospice killed my father. Um, hospice didn't get involved until someone was dying. Yeah. Um, and when hospice comes in and gives comfort measures, 
morphine, lorazepam, all of these different things that help to keep people comfortable and to not have some of the horrible things that can happen as people are dying um, is not what killed someone. Um, cancer or heart disease or other things is what killed someone. Um, those medicines were really helping to try to have that person die more comfortably. Um, So I I would encourage anyone who has the idea that hospice is bad, hospice is scary and dangerous, to recognize that it is not. Um, First, please clear yourself of that thought if that's a thought that you have. So in recognizing when is hospice appropriate and what is hospice, Hospice helps with comfort care and end of life. Um, hospice typically gets involved too late. Yeah. You know, in, in a number of different things that you can look up and read, hospice gets involved mm-hmm. in the last week of life when hospice probably needed to be involved in the last months of life. Hospice cannot get involved while you're doing curative efforts for the potential cause of death. So that's a fancy way of saying if someone has cancer, and they go into hospice, they have to have agreed to stop taking their cancer treatments. They have to have agreed that they're not doing chemotherapy, radiation, and things that are attempting to cure cancer. They can still get radiation for palliative, for comfort. So sometimes we use radiation to shrink tumors, and that's okay. Um, If a person gets a UTI and they're in hospice, we're still treating the UTI. If someone has other illnesses, um, do they have to come off of their heart medicines if they're in hospice for cancer? No, they can can continue those kind of treatments. They can continue to see their own physicians. But you have to stop the curative for what is believed to be the hospice diagnosis, the potential cause of death. But when hospice comes in, they bring a million great resources. Nurses, ability to help people with home care, getting baths for your loved one. Assistive devices like hospital beds and shower chairs and Which things. show up on day yes, one. You know, sometimes awesome. we're trying to get people oxygen in hospital beds and it takes weeks. Hospice gets them there in minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are wonderful people who do end of life for their calling, for their living. And when those people show up, they help not only comfort the hospice patient, yeah. they help comfort the entire family, friends. There are chaplains, there are therapists. Um, there is follow-up after death for bereavement counseling and continuing to, to reach back to the family members. So Amber and I would both encourage you to learn more about hospice, to be comfortable with hospice and recognize that hospice is sometimes the greatest thing we can do for someone who is dying. So not a real feel-good episode, (laughs) but I really hope that today allows you to recognize that some things are simply necessary. And when we do them, it makes the hardest time of your life a little bit less hard. Um, Important conversations to have, and we really encourage you to lovingly have these conversations with the people that you care about. We like to end you on a good note. Today's Tell Me Something Good is your job. You weren't expecting that, were you? So maybe a little stretch and it may not always feel like something good, but your job allows you to have a purpose and a meaning, to spend time with others, to to expand what you're capable of doing. There are so many good things that come from going to work and doing a good job. So although we may not always think it, I really believe that something good is going to work and being productive. Thank you for joining us today. And until next time, take care of yourself.